Uh, this is our Q&A. We answer questions from the Bible about prophecy, critical, hard questions, whatever they might be. A question we got a while back was whether or not we had to obey certain authority if it tells us to do something that's different than the Bible. If it's an authority in a home, like a parent or a husband um, with a wife, since we are complementarian, or complementarian, uh, with um, uh, a church, when a pastor, because the Bible says obey um, those who rule over you. Uh, if a pastor tells you to do something that's unbiblical, or if a police officer or a governor tells you to do something that's unbiblical, should you do it? Well, I want to read a couple of passages to you, and that's only if this is working as well, which it's not, but I think I can get this one on. It's going to take me just a minute here. Hold on. All right. Hi, guys. i got to get up here and okay that. There we go. All right. Now, let me get here, here, here. All right. So, a little crazy to start to this one, but um, here we go. So, again, um, what, what do we do since the Bible tells us to obey all authority if an authority in the Bible tells us to do something that's different uh, than what the Bible says. Like, for example, let me give you what the scriptures say. Romans 13, 1 and 2 says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authority that exists are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. And that's pretty heavy, right? You resist government, you bring judgment on yourself. 1 Peter 2.13 says, Therefore, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, the governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of those who do good, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now, two things that you should notice in context when you're reading these, and that is that it says there is no authority except from God and submit for the Lord's sake. That is, whatever authority here on earth tells us, again, home, church, government, if God's authority in his word tells us something different, then we should do what the authority of God's word says. And that's always the case. And critics at times can act like this is a gotcha moment. Like the Bible tells you to always obey authority. Well, what if authority tells you to do something different than what God does? That's not a gotcha moment at all. In fact, it's pretty simple. We see a lot of examples of this in the Bible. There was a man who wanted to arrest Paul. And Paul instead escaped the city by being let down in a window in a wall. In Matthew 2.12, we hear of the wise men being told in a dream to go a different way and not to go back and report to Herod, even though Herod had authority. And remember, in Romans, when Paul says there is uh, that all authority is from God, the emperors are in charge, and they're living in Rome, which is telling them that they have to give tribute to, to Caesar, and a lot of Christians don't do it. In Acts chapter 5, when Peter and the apostles are warned not to preach the gospel, even that they're going to be beaten, they say we ought to obey God rather than man. That's always the case. Hebrews 11, we're told by faith, when Moses was born, he was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. 
I love the fact that it says there that they thought he was a beautiful child. Had he been an ugly child, we wouldn't have obeyed the king's command. But we thought he was a beautiful child, and so uh, we went ahead and, um, and, and saved him. Uh, Daniel prayed, even though he was told not to pray. Uh, we have the midwives in Egypt uh, that, that disobey. It says, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male child. Uh, so we see clearly that this is not a this is not a contradiction that God's saying obey all authority, and then when the authority contradicts the authority of the Bible or God, then we are to obey God rather than man, and uh, the same thing is true uh, with uh, a teenager whose parents ask them to do something that is ungodly or wrong. You do what's right. And the same thing is true for a wife with a husband. Same thing is true with us and the government. We do what's right. And that's what's important for us uh, to understand. All right. So good to see you guys here. I see again, I didn't get my background up. So what we've got today is the blue background. Um, so that's just uh, the way it is. But it is good to see you. I'm glad we finally got things up and running and working. So I'm going to come back here and go to our first question. And that is from Psych Man. Psych Man, good to see you. Psych Man says, let me get this over here. There we go. All right. Psych Man says, let me get your question up here for us. Psych Man says, are you certain the guys in 1 John 2, 16 and Revelation 13, 1 are the same? All right. I'm, I'm not. Are there more than one Beastie Boy types mentioned, oh, in Revelation, thank you. Um, you mentioned one had the name, one had a name. Thanks for all you do um, for us, man, truly. Well, thank you, Psych Man, I appreciate that. Um, so, yeah, there is one Antichrist. There is the Antichrist. Uh, then there are those that have the spirit of Antichrist. And we could say that anyone who isn't a genuine Christian would have the spirit of Antichrist. And those that teach things that are obviously different biblically um, are the spirit, have the spirit of Antichrist. I want to go to this passage in 1 John so we can see exactly what Psych Band is pointing out. And this is 1 John uh, 2.16. And uh, so he says, he says this, uh, here John says, let me go ahead and put that up on the screen for you. John says, um, my little children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come by which we know that is the last hour. So he mentions the Antichrist and that many Antichrists are going to come. There's another passage, and that's the one I thought this was, where it talks about the spirit of Antichrist. And so anyone that would subject themselves against God is the spirit of Antichrist. People that want to take, take the place of Christ or pretend to be an authority like Christ in your life, then those, have the, um, then those are Antichrist as well. But I do think when it says here, uh, the Antichrist is coming, that's talking about the man of evil. There's much in the Old Testament 
that talks about the Antichrist. And I mean a lot that talks about the Antichrist. One guy that comes on the scene that's, that's got haughty words and exalts himself above God. Uh, talked about in Zechariah, in Daniel, in a lot of the other prophets. So we do know a lot about this Antichrist. All right? So thank you, Psych Man. I appreciate it. Um, we, we will not know who the, the Antichrist is for the tribulation, I believe. And I, I do believe solidly, by the way, that uh, the rapture of the church is before the tribulation period. And I believe that the Bible does clearly teach that. And um, so the, um, we, we are, when these things begin to look place, the Bible says, look up. We aren't to look to try to figure out who the Antichrist is, but we're to look up because our redemption uh, draws nigh. So I appreciate that. Now, if you're new here and you're just joining us today, it's good to see you. If you have a question, then write the word question or put a Q in front of your question and then write out your question, reread it, make sure that it makes sense, add any references that you might have uh, that we can go ahead and take time uh, to answer your questions. So we have a question from Vivian. Vivian says, hi, Pastor. I heard a Christian say that if we are not consistently attacked in some way by the devil or demons, then we are not close enough to God. Thoughts? Um, yeah, thanks, Vivian. Uh, so, a lot of times when we are when when we're in the middle of doing a message or a sermon, we'll read something like that says, "All of those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution." And then we'll say something like, that means if you're not suffering persecution, then you're not living godly. Because all of those who are godly are going to suffer persecution. And the enemy is going to attack. And if you're not under attack, then you're not really doing, you're not making the enemy upset. But if you're under attack, if the enemy is really coming after you, then you're really making the enemy upset. And when we do that, we forget that the enemy attacks people over a period of time. That meaning, meaning that he's not always in a full attack mode. And that sometimes you may go through years without having any heavy spiritual attack. I think the enemy's always attacking behind the scenes. I think he's always trying to do his work. He's got his schemes. I think that's always the case. But we forget that, hey, we're, we're all going to receive persecution. I mean, you live long enough and you will receive some kind of persecution uh, for what you go through. Um, You live long enough and you're going to have a severe attack from the enemy. Uh, Get effective for Jesus and maybe you'll even be attacked more by the enemy. But I don't think that you can take a certain point in time or even a five-year period and say, if you're not receiving persecution, then you're not living godly. Or if you're not under attack by the enemy, then you're really not living as an effective Christian. Um, I think that we, you know, we read passages like that and then want to apply them right now. That's what I think happens, Vivian. Um, But I think overall, it could be said, hey, listen, you're going to live your life for Christ, then you can expect to be attacked. You can expect trials and tribulation because God's going to purify your faith. And you can expect that you're going to be persecuted because the Bible says that. Is that going to happen all the time? No. But it is going to happen. All right? So thank you very much. Um, Vivian, I do appreciate that. Uh, We have another question from John. John says, what is the significance of the number seven? 
I've listened to some of your recent teachings and started uh, the Left Behind series lately. And there's a lot of seven, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven stars, seven lampstands, seven churches, um, all of these things, right? So thanks, John. I appreciate that. So the number seven and numerology in the Bible, there, there is a sense to it. Uh, 666, six being the number of man, it said, seven being the number of completeness or the number of perfection. There's seven notes in the scale. There's seven days in a week. There's uh, seven years in a biblical week of years. Uh, uh, the number of God, the number of completeness. So I don't know. Every time the number seven comes up doesn't mean that it always has that picture to it. But we see in especially apocryphal writings that seven is a significant number. And that it is, and, and that it does speak of completeness. So when you have the seven lampstands, they represent the entire church, the entirety of the church. Now, when you've got the seven trumpets, it's the entirety of the seven trumpet judgments that come out. Um, the seven seals, the same thing, and uh, so on and so forth. All right. So um, hopefully that's helpful, John. Uh, you also find a lot of other biblical numbers, forty. 12, 3, 1, right? One God, there is one God, 7. Um, all of these are biblical numbers uh, that I think have some significance to it. And what, um, and um, you, you can dive in to really, you know, find out a little bit more about numerology. I find that when you read a book on numerology, uh, they have a tendency to go into things that I would go, eh, maybe you're stretching it a bit. I don't know that that that, that, that really is, uh, that as, as the biblical is what you say. But um, there's a lot of good stuff I think you can learn from that. All right, thank you. Uh, John, I appreciate that. Uh, we have a question from Kimberly. Kimberly says, a study I'm going through is um, moving discipleship. Instead of verse by verse, I'm concerned with some of the teaching already. Ex-baptism needed for salvation, no sin nature, should I bail? Ah, um, bat, oh, let's see. It oh, already exists. Okay. Baptism needed for salvation. Yeah. Baptismal regeneration is a work. Um, and if you are in a study that is emphasizing any kind of a work to be saved, not only would say the church of Christ have this, um, doctrine in it, but you could find the doctrine of baptism for salvation in the Catholic church as well. And I always say, like the Church of Christ, as well as with Catholicism, uh, some other churches, they have the pieces that they need in order for genuine salvation. They, they believe in a virgin birth. They believe in the resurrection of Jesus. They believe to some degree in the authority of Scripture. The Catholic Church will put tradition up with the authority of Scripture. The Church of Christ certainly believes in the authority of Scripture. So they have all the pieces. But if they're trusting in baptism to be saved, then baptism won't save them. It's got to be Christ and Christ alone. And I had a, a relative who was Church of Christ, had been baptized, believed he was saved. But as I talked to him, I knew that he knew nothing about a relationship with God. So baptism and regeneration. Also, um, uh, this idea, what was it the other day? Oh, yeah, this idea that you said, no sin nature. Yeah, that we are born without a sin nature. Um, no, we are 
corrupt and we need Christ and we are born with the sin nature. And I would say, from what you've told me, Kimberly, that you should find another uh, Bible study. I don't know that all Bible studies need to be line by line and verse by verse, but it's certainly not a bad thing that they are. And you can save yourself from a lot of difficulties by having Bible studies that are line by line and verse by verse. Uh, but you also can find yourself, uh, save yourself a lot of difficulties by just finding a church that doesn't have these kind of doctrines in it. Um, again, not every time baptism comes up in the Bible does it mean water baptism. We are baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's not baptizing you with water. So just because it says there's an anti-type which saves us, baptism doesn't necessarily mean that it's talking about baptism by, um, by water and so on. All right? So thanks. I appreciate that. I appreciate you, um, Kimberly. Uh, we have a question from Jari. Jari says, um, why did God spare Zor? Wish I knew who Zor was. LOL was afraid of the people of Zor, so they were just as wicked. They, pull, they pulled a Sodom and Gomorrah with his daughters. Zoar. Hmm. Uh, Jari, I'm sorry. I just don't know who, who, who it is. Um, if we had a reference, that would be better. Um, pulled a... Uh, uh, yeah. Sodom and Gomorrah, so I'm not even sure what that reference means. Did he give his daughters to some men? I, I have no idea. Did he want to give his daughters to some men? Did he... I I don't know. What, uh, you know, a lot? We had, we had children with this guy? Yeah, I don't know. Sorry. Uh, Jari, I just need a little bit more information to be able to be helpful on that question. If it doesn't, um, if I don't get the information there, I just don't know. All right. So thank you very much. Um, again, if you're joining us for the very first time, really glad to have you here. Uh, we hope that you're having a great day, that God's really working in your life. If you have questions about the Bible or prophecy or nuances that are going on in your life about Christ, and you have questions about them, then this is our Q&A. It is a supplement to the teaching ministry of Calvary Tucson, meaning that if you are in a study and we're going over something and you have a question about it, and you can write it down and you can come here and we can ask the question. Not only that, just any questions um, that, that you might um, have. All right. So thank you very much, uh, Jari. Let's bring another one here from Jari since I didn't answer his last one. One, one question per person usually. Um, can a person get saved at their last breath? My neighbor passed away yesterday and I was wondering if you could receive Christ at the last minute having an encounter with Jesus. Thanks. Uh, Yes, I believe that you can get saved, Jari, by, by, on your last breath. Not only do I believe that a deathbed experience is possible, I think we're going to be surprised as to how many people have given their lives to Christ on the deathbed. That, and, and, and some people will feel like, well, that's not fair. They went out and lived their lives like they wanted to, and in the last minute they give their lives to Jesus, and Jesus is just going to accept them in the last minute. Well, yeah, that's grace. And besides that, I don't know that you've got the right attitude about what's fair and what's not because you're saying that living in the living worldly in the world is 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 almost like a good thing. Like they got to live, they got the best of both worlds. They got to live for the world, and then they they came and and 
living for Christ is an honor. Being able to deny yourself for him is an honor. And it's always better to live for Christ for your for your your a majority of your life after you surrender your life to him and have a lot of time to be able to live for him here and then die and be in his presence. But for someone that has lived for the world, if they're thinking about Christ and they make things right with him, then they can enter into heaven. And here this becomes something that's rather personal to me as well. We have the thief on the cross, which said, remember me when you come into paradise. And of course, then uh, the Lord remembered him and brought him into paradise. He was saved there at the very last moment, which is, again, I think really important. Um, my dad died of Lou Gehrig's disease. He knew he was dying. And I remember walking by his room and seeing him staring at the ceiling. And then later on thinking, I wonder if he was making things right with God. The Methodist church that we attended certainly didn't teach salvation by faith, by trusting in Christ. But, but at least I didn't hear it. Okay, so I shouldn't say they didn't teach it. I didn't hear it. I did get saved at that church by a youth pastor that was there. But I didn't hear it regularly. But my dad did believe in God, believe in the existence of God. So I would think that he would get to the place where he trusted in God. Okay, so thank you, Jari, for that question. I appreciate it. I do believe with your last breath, with your last thought, that that door is still open. Um, so Talon's with us again. Talon was talking about some gender stuff last week and or last Wednesday. Um, so Talon has a question. Um, does abandoning gender have theological or philosophical, not just practical implications? Yes. It definitely has theological implications. It has biblical <coughs> implications. Um, the Bible says in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that a woman is not to dress like a man and a man <coughs> is not to dress like a woman. We talked about this last Wednesday night. So if you would really want to know more about this, we can you can kind of go back and look at that. We talked about the spectrum of within men that may feel or act more feminine and the spectrum among women that may feel or act more male and that true gender dysphoria there's uh, has always been extremely rare and it's more common today and i got to think that that has something to do with the politics behind behind it so uh, that's what I think, and I don't really want to get back all into it completely today. If you have a different question, Talon, would love to hear it. Um, but yeah, we um, we talked about this on Wednesday as well. All right. So um, yeah. Um, so uh, Kimberly says, "How do we all know about the Church of Christ when I just ran into them?" Um, I yeah, just I, I guess over a period of time. You know, you're you're gonna run into you're gonna run into one of them. I don't know. I ran into one very young. I mean, I had a relative who was Church of Christ, so that's how I was exposed to it. All right. So uh, again, good to see you guys here. Um, we had some technical difficulties at the beginning, but we've got those uh, all worked out.
Yeah, and um, there's another, uh, Kimberly Fox says, let's put this in here, um, Kimberly. Kimberly Fox says, I've seen many years, uh, most of my life, Church of Christ churches, but I don't think they were any more than just a church for Christ. Interesting. And that certainly could be the case. The interesting thing about my relative was that, I mean, you talk to him, you would know he wasn't a Christian. I mean, as a Christian talking to him, you would know this isn't a Christian. In fact, he argued with me about Jesus being God, and that might not be that Jesus was the Son of God and not God. And I realized then I got to get back to some basics because he's, he's, he's biblically illiterate, not knowing that Hebrews 1 says, to the Son, he says, God, your God has anointed you. And so the Bible tells us that the Son is God. But being biblically illiterate and not being a Christian are two different things. And I, I would hope that the people that are in the Church of Christ have a genuine belief in Christ and have trusted in Him for their salvation and not trusted in works. Uh, it can be argued against really, really well. Uh, there's a lot of other things um, that are happening with the Church of Christ today. Uh, but, you know, I mean, you know, they don't play musical instrument. There's a lot of things. Um, it, I... I, I I saw recently some of the numbers overall of different groups, and I'm trying to remember. I think the Church of Christ was declining, but I can't remember exactly. It would make sense to me if they were. Um, let me look up. Um, I want to look up Genesis. Jari has a follow-up for Genesis 19, 23. Let me just go ahead and look at that. Uh is this, maybe this may be Zor, I don't know, the, the one I missed, <laughs> uh, that I don't know who Zor is, I can't remember, or don't know, uh, verse, let's see, verse 20, 20 through 23, yeah, there we go, um, that's Zor, all right, so, let's go ahead, let me just go back and see what the, Wow, this goes way back here. Um, let me just see what this... Wow. Okay. Um, so it's talking about Zod um, Sodom. So Zor, Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed. 14, and then we get to verse 20. Is Zor the smaller city? Is that what I'm thinking? Am I thinking right? 1920. Okay, let's get to 20 here. Yeah. Yeah, it's a smaller city. All right, so Jari's um, had a question about Zor, which is a smaller city that God allowed Lot to um, go to. He says, see now, there's a city near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Please let me escape there. Uh, is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he said to him, see, I have favor concerning you, this thing also, and that um, you will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape uh, there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. And remember, Jesus said that the last days were going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. They were marrying, giving in marriage, and then sudden destruction would come upon them. But they weren't able to bring that destruction until Lot got out. God couldn't do it until he got out. Therefore, the name was called Zor. Ooh, well, there's interesting. Zoar. So, therefore, its name is called that. Let me get over to... Just do this. So, I don't do it there. But let me get over to my... There it is. My Strong's Concordance. Nope. 
Yeah, and I'm going to go to Genesis. What was it again, Jari? Genesis 2019. Genesis 2019. I'm just interested now in what the the actual name Zoar or Zor is. Genesis 20. Where am I at? Genesis. Oh, Genesis 19. I'm like, there's not enough chapters in this. Genesis 20. trouble with this. All right, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what it is. But anyway, it said um, uh, that is why it was called that. I'm not sure why. Let me try let me try that one more time and see if I can get there. Genesis 20. Hmm. Yeah, for some reason I'm having some trouble with one of my apps. Shocking. Shocking that we would have trouble uh, today. All right. So, um, so you were saying, what is the deal with the city? Why didn't God destroy it? Um, I don't know. I don't know if the city had something else. Um, if it wasn't, wasn't a part of it, um, why God would spare? Maybe God was just being merciful to that one city and brought judgment on the other cities. Um, maybe God brought judgment on them uh, a different way, uh, perhaps. Uh, it is interesting to me, and maybe I shared this with you last week, that uh, they they have discovered Sodom and, uh, the city of Gomorrah, and um, Dr. Stephen Collins. I was just taking time to look him up. If you want to um, look into it, Dr. Stephen Collins, who's an archaeologist, has discovered uh, where Gomorrah was. It's made some major headline news, but it hasn't um, it hasn't caught on. But it is interesting. Uh, this it was a city. It's in Jordan. It goes, it lot goes east from that city. It's exactly where the Bible says it was. And it's, um, and it was destroyed by fire. It was destroyed by a very hot fire. So uh, if I talked about that last week, uh, forgive me about that. Forgive me on that, would you, if I did on Wednesday, all right? Um, yeah, so did someone say that the Bible says there's no more male or female? Is that what that was, um, Kimberly? So let me just bring in Kimberly's statement here. Um, I, I may have missed something in it. I absolutely disagree that there is no more male nor female. How in my training and schooling, uh, testosterone can be born much higher in some women and men and estrogen uh, the same. And men, estrogen the same. Yeah. Uh, so when the Bible says there's no male or female, it says that there is no Jew or Gentile, no male or female. When you go especially to in Galatians, where it's talking about the firstborn son, the one who is the right of the firstborn son, he's talking, he talks about us having that, and then he says there's no male and female. In other words, he's saying you women have have inheritance as well. That's what he's saying. And so to God, there is no male and female. It just means that God's not a respecter of persons. God does expect us there, there's something dishonoring about to God about not acting like the gender that you are, and and that's not saying that someone who's more a guy who's more feminine or a gal that's more masculine is doing something dishonoring if they're not deliberately doing it. If it's just the way that they are, but if they are doing it on purpose, then yes, there's something um, dishonoring about it. 
Uh, we have uh, another question from um, Talon. Talon, we only have one question, but your question was the same as last week. So why don't we bring you in again? We'll give you two questions this week. Um, the church learned a lot from the hippie movement. Do you think we can learn anything from the transgender movement? So probably, are you referencing um, the movie Jesus Revolution? And what what did we learn from, what did the church learn from the hippie movement? So Talon, I would, I would just, I would want to challenge that question. I don't know that we learned anything more about the Bible from the hippies. We, they came to Christ. They were accepted in by Calvary Chapel, other churches as well. They, well, the Bible never says you have to dress a certain way to be a Christian, other than modest, right? Modesty was, is important. So they dressed differently, but the Bible didn't say anything about that. And we certainly didn't learn to dress like hippies. They stopped dressing like hippies over a period of time. Um, I, would, I would challenge the question that we learned something from the hippies. What can we learn from transgender? Um, the hippies were definitely in a sex culture, uh, a drug culture. They turned from it to become Christians. They didn't bring their drug and sex culture into the church. They repented from it and became Christians. I'm not saying everybody was, was, was immediately set free or there weren't people who still struggled. Some are going to say that Lonnie Frisbee struggled when he was at Calvary Chapel, although he says in his own biography that that struggle was later, that he was never homosexual, but he did struggle with homosexual temptation later on in his ministry, not back in the early 60s. That's what he says, um, and it's his biography. But we didn't accept the church. Did I, I, I listened to all the teachings of Pastor Chuck through the Bible in the late 70s that would have been taught to the hippies, and there was no acceptance of any kind of sin. There was always an encouragement of repentance. And since this is a sinful behavior, there just needs to be a repentance of it to, to do what's right. All right, so yeah, I would question that statement there, Talon. And um, we appreciate you though. And uh, if um, I think that the transgender movement has salvation waiting for them um, from Christ. And am I saying that someone who is transgender can't be a Christian? If they are convicted and want to do what God wants them to do, if you don't want to do what God wants you to do, if you don't want to do it, the Bible says this is the it's the it's the sign of whether or not you are genuinely saved. That we want to do what God wants us to do, and if not, then well, it's uh, then we're not. We're not genuinely saved. Let me show you this. And if the Bible uh, uh, teaches in the Old and the New Testament, because the Old Testament, you might be able to say, well, that's the Old Testament. But the New Testament teaches as well that um, uh, for a man to have long hair is a shame. And, and the real thing there is feminine. It's not long. and It's not long hair, but it's feminine. And I'm going to go to, I think it's 1 John 2, 3. Um, yeah, let me put this up on the screen here. It says, now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. 
He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So when we are born again, there is a transformation that happens in our lives and we find ourselves wanting to do what God wants us to do. When you don't want to do that, when you say, I don't want to do what God wants me to do, I don't want to do what the Bible says, then you haven't got to have a real genuine commitment to Christ. And so if your lifestyle choices is, are something that is outside of what is biblical, then you haven't made a commitment to him. Now, could a genuine Christian be struggling in an area? Yeah, that they, they could be, and we could have that conversation. All right. So thank you very much, Talon. I appreciate it. So um, Stephen and uh, Katie have a question. Uh, question thoughts on possible Eucharist miracle in Connecticut. This is the first time I've heard of such a thing. Yeah, the Catholic Church has a lot of miracles, so-called miracles that they do. One of them is the fire on Easter that's supposed to ignite by itself or, or certain things that turn to blood or certain statues that bleed, uh, these kind of things. So I don't know what what this miracle in of the Eucharist in Connecticut is. I haven't heard of it, Stephen, sorry. So I don't know. Um, uh, I would, you know, the Bible talks about false lying wonders and I think that a lot of these miracles, I think some of them are made up, and I think that, I, I don't know if, if any of them are genuine. We don't go by miracles anyway. We're never told to, because there are lying wonders, so we go by what the Word of God says for the truth, not by those things. All right, so thank you very much. Um, Stephen, I appreciate that. Sorry I didn't know more about it. If you want to fill me in a little bit more, I won't take time to uh, to look it up right now, but if you want to fill me in a, a little bit more, um, then I, I would um, I, I'd love to be able to respond to that more. Sorry, trying to read this a little bit. Um, yeah, I um. Uh, all sin, there, there, there's a conversation going on about sin and whether being homosexual or transgender is as bad as any other sin. All sin is going to separate you from God. And you have to get things right with God, which is going to make you evaluate yourself and want to get sin out of your life. And there's a difference between an outburst of anger that you repent from and a lifestyle. If someone's living a lifestyle of promiscuity, heterosexual, and saying, I'm a Christian, we would question that. If that same person repented and is now living a, a, a lifestyle committed to Christ, committing their sexuality to Christ, and then has an outburst of wrath, we say that he's a Christian who had an outburst of wrath. Uh, or if um, there was a a, a a lustful thought, maybe even a, a, a lustful sexual action, that we would say 
that they repented from, that there is forgiveness when you genuinely repent, and there has to be genuine repentance. But we would not say that someone that is in a different lifestyle than than just a, a standard, you know, heterosexual lifestyle, we would not say that they are any more separated from God. Although the Bible does talk about being given over to a base mind in which uh, other than other than heterosexual is mentioned by that. And I'm not sure that I can find that passage really quick, but maybe I can. Um, yeah, I was able to. Okay, so let's go back here. I'm going to read backwards a little bit. Um, let me see if I can find... So this is Romans chapter one. I'm going to start. Um, I'm going to start back in verse twenty, which is quite a ways back here. But I want to read this. Um, it says, "For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen, been understood, that things that are made, even his eternal power, Godhead, so that they are without an excuse." The idea that we even see creation tells us that God exists. And so man is without excuse because he's in creation. And because of creation, he sees it and knows that there is a God. Plus, God's put something inside of us that we know that there's a God too. Verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So because they knew God, they know that God exists and they reject him, their hearts are darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible birds and far-footed creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanliness in the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served creatures rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also men, leaving the nature, natural use of a woman, burned their lust towards one another, man with man, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which is due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to those things which are not fitting. And he's not just talking about someone who's other than heterosexual there, it's talking about anybody that has that knows God and turns and rejects from him, they are given over to a, a debased mind. Um, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. Um, uh, you see, there's just all kinds, of this, this list just kind of goes on and on of what they are given over to, not just those certain things. So, the, the, again, the scriptures are really clear. If the scriptures are your authority, and we believe that they are inerrant in the truths that they bring, that we have all these manuscripts that can be compared to each other and contrasted, and that we have gotten back to the, the preserved word of God by being able to do so, and so we believe that, that we've got that clearly. Um, I would just... I, I want to just stay focused on that this is not the unforgivable sin. And I think that that's really important. 
Well, what, what, whatever sexual sin you're talking about is not the unforgivable sin. That's not a, it's not, it's not a sexual sin. Man is, man is sexual and sins sexually, but God is loving and forgiving. And what if someone, and, and the, our identity should not be wrapped up in our sexuality anyway. I, I, I don't go around telling people I'm a heterosexual. I'm heterosexual, but I don't run around telling people I'm heterosexual. My identity is not wrapped up in me being heterosexual. My identity is wrapped up in me being a Christian. Nobody's identity should be wrapped up in that. And if someone's having same-sex attraction, and that's their temptation, just like we all have sexual attractions, having a same-sex attraction is a temptation that needs to be fought against. It's, it's just a temptation. So when you say something like he created them, well, you're putting their identity somewhere their identity shouldn't be. God created heterosexuals, right? And they sin too, and they have sexual temptation. And so someone that has same-sex attraction and there have been, been have become Christians who do not marry, and some say, well, that's really sad. Well, that hey, look, you sacrifice a lot of things for Christ. And you sacrifice a lot of temptation for Christ. And a lot of sin needs to be turned away from. We could, we could use a lot of examples that I don't really want to go into on right now. Um, but we could go into a lot of examples on that.